All right. Well, good morning, everybody. As always, you're listening to the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialties Healthy Podcast. This is Corey Worden. I'm the administrator for the practice specialty. So today we got a fantastic episode coming up. Today we got Rob Booth. He's got a fantastic career uh, ranging from the Navy as a working with sensitive chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear agents as an interpreter, all the way to working in public health for the last couple of years during the COVID-19 pandemic. So he's got a lot of great perspectives on on safety and infection prevention and everything in between. So we're going to go ahead and get into that. But uh, Rob, short of me speaking for you, if you would, if you can give us just a quick introduction of yourself and where you come from, where you're going, all that cool stuff. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Corey. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm from Houston, Texas. That's that's my hometown. Uh, currently live down at the coast on surf in Surfside Beach, but I uh, I enlisted in the Navy after finishing a degree in in literature in uh, Austin, and uh, I always remember reading the, uh, the the little biography blurbs of writers, and you'd see that they did like uh, like Jack Kerouac had um, his employment history was he was a dishwasher, uh, a fire fire watch lookout. Uh, a, ra- a railroad brakeman. I mean, it had all these varied, weird little things, and I never, and I never thought that I was going to be the guy someday saying I had this really weird background of doing all sorts of different stuff that doesn't seem to fit together. But it kind of does. I uh, I enlisted after I got a degree in English from UT, and I enlisted it in the Navy, and I was a cryptologic technician interpretive, which meant first that they sent me to language school, so I learned uh, I learned Russian. I was uh, was well, and I still am to a certain degree fluent um, to uh, a, a good level. Uh, I did a tour in intelligence work, so I did, uh, and that was deployed out on ships and submarines. Uh, Navy's very big on safety, especially the nuclear navy, and with the submarines I, I was on, they were all uh, nuclear submarines. So had uh, had uh, a lot of in, a lot of uh, safety training. Everybody in the navy is a fireman. Uh, fire on a ship at sea is not a pleasant place, not a pleasant place to be. So everybody learns how to uh, deal with that. Um, then I, I did really well at that for some reason. I, there's a part of my brain that does really well with languages. So I did, uh, I did uh, that tour in intelligence, and then they picked me up to work as an actual interpreter. Um, and that w- in that job, I was stationed at what was the on-site inspection agency, and is now the Defense Threat Reduction Agency as a as a, a russian interpreter they uh, put me into the chemical weapons division which the point of the chemical weapons division was to implement the chemical weapons convention that the united states uh, ratified while i was there so we were uh, going around the u.s production storage testing facilities and uh, escorting international inspectors mostly when they were doing inventories of the chemical weapons that the U.S. had in its arsenal at the time. So uh, I had to learn, and I was a sub-team leader uh, eventually, and so I had to learn how to operate, uh, execute a mission in a chemically hazardous environment. Uh, Lots of training on that, lots of wearing of heavy-duty PPE, uh, learned a lot. Uh, Then I also, that wasn't enough <laughs> for me. So I volunteered to do biological weapons dismantlement projects as well. So I was going over to Russia uh, and Kazakhstan and working on joint projects. Uh, for one, we did a, uh, in Kazakhstan, I was at the beginning of a project to dismantle an anthrax production facility in a town called Stepnogorsk in Kazakhstan. And once again, there we were, uh, I, 
executing a mission in a hazardous environment that uh, could be, you know, in worst case scenario, it could lead to people dying. So uh, had a, a lot of interesting time doing that. Uh, lady that I worked for there, she um, did not really like working with an interpreter as much, uh, standing face to face with someone and going with the back and forth. So she just basically gave me and the other interpreter like uh, direction on what she wanted to accomplish. And then she sent us off to go speak with the Kazakhstan government officials and we would just kind of work everything out. That was, and that was a very interesting experience and, and uh, learned a lot. Um, so after I got out of the Navy and then I went into the oil field services industry, and that's also a very safety oriented uh, uh, industry. The, these, the oil field services industry are, are the people that actually drill, complete and produce uh, oil and gas wells. So it's an inherently risky construction project with um, also a lot of environmental concerns, but also uh, a good deal of safety concerns. So the safety culture was prevalent uh, throughout. I spent most of my time at the uh, employed at Halliburton. It's a great company. Um, at some time at GE Oil and Gas, I was usually in, I was mostly in sales roles. I did a little bit of time in supply chain doing uh, data analysis as well. And then uh, the when the pandemic hit, uh, they were downsizing tremendously. The oil field services is very cyclical. Everybody who goes into that learns very quickly that you need to be prepared for a downturn. We've had them all the time before this. The pandemic was though probably the, the worst uh, out of the whole bunch of downturns that I'd seen. And so I found myself looking for work and just happened to, I, I applied for a job doing data analysis for the city of Houston Health Department. And that, uh, that, rec that job requisition got uh, canceled uh, after we'd already been through doing a lot of talking and, and interviewing and stuff. And so then my, my resume popped up and they were really trying to figure out what they were going to do with mobile teams because they had um, at the time one, one mobile team and a few fixed sites, stadiums. And they were trying to figure out how, how they could find people that could run a mobile team. They had just stuck an emergency room doctor um, into in charge of one of them and she did a fantastic job. But you know, how do you find the right person and avoid finding the wrong person? So I, I interviewed for that uh, at their request. And when they found out that I had set up operations in hot zones before and uh, and, un and understood uh, infectious disease well enough to e execute uh, safety regulations, they uh, gave me the job. And, and that's what I did for about a bit more than about a year. And that was uh, quite a challenge because two reasons. Uh, one was it wasn't something that anybody had ever really done before on that scale. You can find some, there are some virus hunters and people like that out there that do go in and chase Ebola around in the, in the, the jungles of Africa, but uh, on a very limited scale, I don't think anybody had set up an entire testing operation that, that the size that we've seen in, in the world right now, the, uh, so we had to uh, kind of improvise and use common sense to, to do we think we needed the uh, the other challenge is and this is what uh, uh, our safety inspector that be, that be Corey uh, told me uh, one time that really stuck in my head which was we were inviting the virus into our workspace so we were actively recruiting people to come in and get tested and we knew that a certain percentage of them uh, I think right now they're running at about probably about 13 to 15 percent is what I read in the paper that um, 13 to 15% of the people coming into the workplace to be tested are going to be positive. And then how do you deal with that 
and and how do you run an operation safely? That was a that was a good challenge. But um, and that brought me up to where I am now. I've uh, the uh, the job kind of ran its course. The it was meant to be temporary to begin with, and things were going very slow. And so I decided to uh, put in a deadline and. Uh, Take a take some time off. I had some, some personal business that I really did have to attend to. I was going to take up a good deal of my time. So um, right now I'm uh, <laughs> I'm taking a gap year or I'm retired. I'm not sure <laughs> one yet. I guess that's how we'll see how the money goes. Oh yeah, that's outstanding. I always I always enjoy hearing about your experiences. It's uh, it's like you're a you're a true life Jack Ryan. <laughs> Except I spend a lot more time behind a keyboard. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the part that they don't show in the in the movies, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, definitely uh, outstanding stuff there. You know, working with the uh, the um, the top secret um, military operations with the Seaburn agents and the all the way to you know oil and gas operations up up into public health. So within that spectrum. You know, obviously there's a lot going on there. What what are the types of hazards that you've seen? I know that in the past we've talked about um, everything from, of course, you know, pandemic level viruses, and we talked about workplace violence and active shooters. What what are the things you've seen the most? Well, you know, it's funny. It's it, what I've always what always has been the the biggest challenge has been the stuff that you didn't foresee or think about, and maybe it's because it's not quite as you know sexy as protecting from a, a, a very dangerous virus. Um, for example, in the anthrax production facility, the, the Soviet Union had abandoned it and left it to the Kazakhstan government. And so the place was in horrible disrepair. And there were places where there was huge holes in the floor where the, the concrete had just given way. And there was no, the, the Kazakhstan, the, the little skeleton crew there, they had, they didn't, they all knew about it. So they didn't put, do any measures to protect anybody else from it. So, you know, the if we weren't watching our step, we could have fallen down, you know, 20 feet onto a concrete floor. And uh, they also had, uh, I don't know, the former Soviet Union, I think they must have, they used asbestos on a scale that we never did. Um, I walked through, uh, unfortunately, a crawl space. Uh, it was about a four or five foot tall crawl space. So I was hunched over with my, some guys on my team. We were going through tracing a pipe and <laughs> all this stuff started fluffing up in the air. And we looked at it around and we looked at each other and I asked the Kazakhstan guy, I said, what is this stuff on the floor here? And he answered, he said, asbest. And so the, uh, the rest of the team was quick enough to catch that <laughs> meant asbestos and uh, we masked up right away. Um, it would have been more of a long-term hazard than a short-term one, but we didn't, didn't feel like taking any chances with the amount of uh, friable asbestos that was up in the air. The other thing that uh, is not so... And the thing that happened on the mobile testing team that I did not think about going into it was that I was going to be spending a lot of my time worrying about the weather. It makes sense. You sh I should have thought of that when I was going into it, that I would have, you know, made a big, you know, I would have done more research and learning before I went into it. But I had to learn a lot on the fly about um, how to figure out uh, what the weather could do to our operations, uh, the for a long time, when we had uh, very lightweight tents, we had to worry about the wind. And that was a real bear to deal with because if you try and look up, you know, everybody tries to look up on an app on their phone, what's the, what's the wind temperature? I'm sorry, what's the wind speed? 
Well, the wind is measured at some station, some distance from where you are, maybe at a different altitude from where you are. And they're certainly not on the same side of the building or the same side of the trees that you're on or the same side of a highway that you're on. And so I was looking, you know, uh, I, I relied on uh, one guy on my logistics team. He and I uh, would talk through a lot of this stuff. And we would be standing out there and we're, I'm looking at the phone. I'm saying, you know, Mr. Miller, the phone says the wind is eight miles an hour. And we're both looking and we're saying that's not eight miles an hour. That's more like 20. And so finally I went out and I had to go, went out and bought an, an anemometer or wind meter just so we would know what is the wind speed right here, exactly where we are standing and the people who are, who are working here and the, our customers who are all of whom I'm responsible for their safety, um, had to go, I went out and got that, and that finally gave me a bit of peace of mind about uh, trying to deal with it. Uh, the other thing was Texas, Houston, uh, it's a big, wide-open, flat, concrete prairie that meets up with a big, wide-open, flat Gulf of Mexico. So storms go where they want to. They're not channeled around. They just move um, seemingly randomly at times. And so I had to become something of a, an expert on figuring out where were the lightning strikes, which direction were they going, and what uh, what speed were they moving at, so that I would have some sort of idea of when I needed to be uh, shutting down operations so that we didn't have, have people outside in, in the lightning, which, especially when we were under these tents, which were just like a, well, I assume they were just going to be like a magnet for lighting, lightning. And of course, then if there's lightning and, and rain, there's also going to be wind, which is going to make me which was made me on numerous occasions pull the tents down so that they wouldn't become a flying object. Um, happened one time uh, that it did, uh, the tent struck someone and uh, did cause a, a, a mild injury, but that uh, ended up, I ended up kicking myself for the every day for a long time about that one. So that uh, caused me to, to start taking the wind a lot more seriously. But yeah, that was, it was the, the things that, you know, you don't think about, you know, you're, the mundane things that you don't think about when you're thinking about how, you know, what about a virus and what type of masks and PPE you need to be wearing. Uh, it was more like, you know, you need to wonder, worry about people getting rained on and wet and, have, and catching cold. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we had a similar conversation about that just the other day. Where I was speaking to one of our one of our previous podcast guests, uh, Norman Ritchie, we were talking about how, in the context of high reliability operations, you know, such as uh, aviation or nuclear power generation or or um, space flight or whatnot, you know, there's a lot of situations where they'll be you know extremely highly reliable within the within their main objective or their primary mission, but then surrounding that primary mission. Like in, for example, aviation, the actual, the actual flight operations will be completely incident-free. But then, you know, the um, the baggage handlers and on the tarmac and the, the fuel handlers, there'll be a lot of incidents such as slip trips and falls or strains or cuts and scrapes or things of that nature. So, high reliabilities, you know, it's not just a matter of the the primary mission or the primary objective, but everything that surrounds that that makes it happen. All the support operations, which you know, military's very familiar with that, you know, everything, they always say, you know, the infantry is the primary focus of the army, but they're surrounded by, you know, infinite number of people that support the infantry or air force, you know, mm -hmm. the, the air mission is the primary, but there's infinite people that support the air mission. So it totally makes sense. What you're saying there is that the testing. Yeah, is the primary. 
I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and also like on a related note then, uh, obviously we did, we, we, we tested everybody on the mobile team once a week. And we uh, obviously did not know with any degree of certitude if someone got a positive in, uh, infection, where they got it from. But my, uh, I, I was privy to know who tested positive when. And my, by my observation, I think we had about 100% safety that people did not get infected on the job. They got infected doing their other life. <laughs> and uh, that and I got infected and that's how I got infected was just doing my life and having and having friends that I went and uh, I think that's what we managed to perfectly clamp down at the workplace on 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 people getting infected but they have they have to go out into the world after that and that and that's where uh, people got infected yeah, absolutely yeah, and I know that uh, a lot of the diligence into monitoring that. And again, that's also an interesting point because with the new the OSHA emergency temporary standard around COVID-19 in healthcare facilities, they're not only requiring an exposure log for occupational exposures, but an exposure log for any, any COVID-19 cases. So that way they can also keep track if there's anything brought into the facility. Uh, so definitely that's, you know, yeah, we're definitely doing that be uh before it was required which is a great practice <clears throat> yeah yeah definitely very important stuff so with with all that information you know a lot of a lot of very important things to think about what are some of the best practices that you've seen as far as as far as uh overall um improvement of, of safe working conditions and, and safe work practices well, yeah, fortunately, like I said before, you know, scaling it up to the level that we did is not something that's been done in, you know, in, in, in our modern life that I, that I am aware of. But there were some good standard practices with already established and, and in the world before any of this, before the, 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 before the, before the virus jumped out of Wuhan. Uh, the uh, one thing that I, uh, what, what I'm thinking about is, uh, donning and doffing of PPE. CDC already had, because I was taught this when I was working biological stuff a million years ago, the proper way to don and doff PPE to avoid cross-contamination. And that has been gone over a, a million times by a million very smart people. And they've got it down to um, a very good set of practices that you can easily, easily, he said, <laughs> simply, uh, easily scale up to uh, maintain a, a safe working environment for everybody, uh, and that's what we—that's what we did. I, I, on my team, I was pretty—I um, was pretty—I was very uh, diligent about that. I told everybody on the team that we're, you know, we're not going to be reusing face shields. I don't care if we have to—if we're at the point where we have to reuse face shields, I'm going to shut us down until we get face shields in, and that. Uh, and that they're going to be thrown away after every shift and they're going to be put into the, the into the red bag because they you know we're not going to risk the so and anybody on the team by bringing a, a now contaminated face shield into the into the cold area uh into the uh, into the rest area no not going to happen so um i thought that the donning and doffing uh, guidelines that we had in place were, were really helpful the, uh, the, the, a lot of the, a lot of the other stuff is kind of unknown, but the, that, that's definitely a known. The, um, 
Oh, and and the other the, one of the other little things that I've, I've, I you don't think about it's it's not because it's not quite as fun it, is managing a line of people. We had at at times um, I had a hundred people, you know, two people per car, fifty cars in line. How do you manage that line? And when we sometimes we had uh, Houston Police Department support, and they would they would give us ideas, but a lot of it was left up to us. And so uh, what I found was that when uh, the, that was one of the things that was most effective was we had, uh, you know, you guys and in, in, in in the safety structure to rely on to help us design every week a new place, design a safe uh, environment to, to move a lot of people through and not get them contaminated. Um, I don't think people would have realized how much uh, time we spent thinking about how we're going to move people through the testing process without having them come back and contaminate other people behind them. And uh, that was, we had a whole bunch of really good principles, I think, on on how to do that. And then we would just have to implement them at each uh, site. So I think that was uh, very effective and uh, made also for a, a better workflow for every for everybody as well when they understood um, when we understood how to best move our customers through as, as quickly and safely as we could. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, like you said, you know, the cross contamination prevention is, is very important there because it, it's one thing to keep the team safe, but not at the expense of all the, all the patients or all the clients. Um, and that, that's something we see all the time in hospitals as well. You know, it's interesting. I, I was thinking about this as you were discussing those things as, you know, like you said, the scalability of it, you know, the size and scope of the operation is when we do these things in a, in a, uh, like a seaburn response team, you know, like in the military, if we were doing a, a response to a suspected anthrax or VX or GB or whatnot, then, you know, of course, we're able to determine where the hazard exists. We, you know, we d determine the downwind hazard distance and the perimeter, and then we're able to make sure the team is team is protected with you know respirator and PPE. Then we're able to set up the zones, and then we're able to do the response and and shrink the cordon as we absorb, neutralize, or, or physically remove the hazard. So what we're talking about here is the same thing, just on a much bigger scale with many more patients and a, a moving hazard. You know, it comes from people's people's mouths and nose as they move around the world. So it's it's not. It's not in one place where the hazard exists or whether it's spread through downwind hazard or whatnot. Um, so have you seen similarities between what you saw with with your Navy operations and, and what happened with the pandemic? Oh, yes. Um, in particular, having it, it, the biggest the biggest same thing was that it was new, uh, particularly like the Chemical Weapons Convention. The idea of those, the guys that worked on those depots had had never in their lives contemplated the idea of bringing in outsiders uh, into their works into their workspace and letting them go inside the bunkers. That uh, was completely out, outside of their realm. So we had to it, it, <laughs> we had to go to a new bunker several times a day. We had to go to a new depot uh, every other month or so, and we had to work through with people how we were going to implement this. Uh, and sometimes we were implementing it with the uh, inspectors standing right there because we were trying to figure out how we could best demonstrate to them that the U.S. was living up to its treaty obligations and keep everything safe and uh, keep everything secure 
um, uh, the uh, and that was kind of like the same thing. We'd have to go into um, a church parking lot where the very nice church lady would be there, but she had no clue whatsoever about what we were doing and exactly how to make it safe. And they they would just have to account. Then they were very accommodating. All all the wonderful people were very accommodating to us, but we had to basically figure out how to you know a church is not set up to be <laughs> by a, have a hot zone in it. They just, they, they've never thought about that when they built a church, but there we are in the parking lot and we're putting in a hot zone. So we had to kind of improvise it on the spot. What would be the best way to, to move that through? And that I probably learned more in the health department than I did in the military and, and in the pandemic than I was supposed to routine business about how to uh, do all that stuff safely. It was uh, uh, very, but it was very much the same thing. It, very similar uh, exercises, the trying to accomplish and trying to reach certain goals in uh, and operating within a hazardous environment that was improvised uh, on the spot. That uh, was definitely very similar. Yeah, it's interesting. And um, I had a lot of those conversations myself. Um, Back in in 2014, when we had the the Ebola situation, there were a lot of those conversations where I was explaining, you know, the similarity to what we would do with a with a, with a seaburn agent or whatnot. And then with this COVID-19 pandemic, it's the same thing, except the the hazards on such a such a larger scale, and it's much more mobile, and uh, there's there's a lot fewer resources you know there's not not a of course it's infeasible to to think we have negative pressure isolation rooms for each patient and for mm -hmm. a long time we didn't have enough tests and we didn't have vaccines for a year so um a lot of variables there and uh you know y'all being able to to work through all that and as the situation evolved was excellent um with all that you know the the thing i always ask last year is um i'm always interested in everybody's perspective so if you had the, you know, the proverbial magic wand to wave to make things safer all around, what, what are some of the things that, that you'd like to see done overall, whether it's workplace or, or public safety or public health? I've, I've said this a million times to myself and, and, and sometimes angrily, but um, what the, I would change people's attitudes to stop trying to make the perfect the enemy of the good and try to understand that we are going to be mitigating risks. We're not always going to be eliminating risks and that people need to use common sense that a lot of, and you see this a lot with, uh, with people who, um, are, are skeptical of mask wearing, uh, for example, the mask isn't perfect. So why bother trying? Well, the answer is the ma yes, the mask is not perfect. No masks are perfect. N95 stands for, N stands for 95%. So none of this stuff is perfect, but it reduces the risk. And that's, it's not an on and off light switch. It's a dimmer switch. You know, turn it up and turn it down. Uh, and unfortunately, I saw that attitude replicated even within the testing teams. Uh, some people just couldn't get that, couldn't grasp or go along with that concept um, and couldn't understand that, yeah, we're, we're taking risks that, and we're going to try and take these risks safely, as safe as we can make it. But the safest, the safest path would be not to test anybody, and we're not going to do that. So we've got to find somewhere in between 
where we can safely go out and test people as, as best that we can. But, you know, if one well-placed sneeze by the wrong person at the wrong time uh, is, is going to infect somebody. And unfortunately, that, that we, we can beat down the numbers so that we can make that less and less likely, but we can't make it impossible, um, especially when we were doing the testing that we were, the, the nasal swab, uh, not the nasal pharyngeal, not the deep nasal one, but just the, even the shallow nasal one. If somebody did it right, they sneezed. And uh, you know we, we were just not, not going to be able to prevent all that from happening. With, and I've, I've, I've said this in, in my private life with people and, and engaged in conversation with people about why I was wearing a mask, uh, why I thought wearing a mask was good. And people just don't, didn't want and kind of actually kind of politicized the, the notion of wearing a mask and to the point of beyond common sense where you could, un, you know, you could, you could, anybody should be able to understand that wearing a mask is going to reduce the number of droplets that you exhale and the number of droplets that you're going to inhale. And yes, the cloth mask that I wore every day, 10 hours, 12 hours a day for a year was not 100%, but I combined that with staying at least six feet away from people. And then when they're testing about 20 feet away from them, then, uh, you know, all of that stuff contributed to reducing the risk, but not eliminating it. And people kind of just got stuck on that, uh, stuck on the idea of eliminating the risk. And I, I really wish that people would jump up, you know, make that one step further and understand, um, understand the concept of the dimmer switch. Definitely. It's interesting. That's also a, that's also a, um, a, a principle that's, that's been discussed by some of our other guests as well. It's very important, you know, the idea that we can, we have to balance between accomplishing the, the mission or meeting the objective or the goal while keeping it, you know, as safe as, as reasonable is, um, is very important there. It's, it's a matter of due diligence, you know, that we're doing everything we can to keep the risk as low as possible. Um, but like you said, the only way to eliminate the risk would be just not to do the mission. And in that case, we're creating a bigger risk for the public because we don't know how far the infection spread. So mm -hmm. we keep it as safe as we can. But, um, but yeah, the hazard does exist and we have to be able to, to mitigate it as much as we can. I think a lot of the challenge, like you said, you know, a lot of the challenge became when the situation became artificially politicized and, and people refused, it, it, not everybody, of course, but I'm speaking of certain case studies, people refused to um, to do the diligence. They, they wouldn't do the, like you said, the social distancing or the source control with the face masks or the, you know, if they have people that are going to be within that six feet close proximity to potentially infectious people, they didn't do respirators and PPE or they didn't do fit testing. So if there's those big wide open gaps, then that creates a you know, that creates an unnecessary risk. But um, as long as we do the diligence, then we can still accomplish the mission within within safe parameters. Yeah. <clears throat> and I should uh, add at this point also that the, the customers quite often, uh, almost all of the customers were also very appreciative and very respectful of the safety parameters that we had in place and uh, were very cooperative about that. 
um, I guess it was, has to do with the people that were coming out to get, get tested. And we were going into uh, underserved neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods. And so they were very appreciative that, that we were coming in there. And, and some of the neighborhoods that, uh, that we were in um, actually had a few uh, local, actually one, one place I went to, I had some local tough guys come up and, and tell me that they respected us for coming in there and coming into their neighborhood because they, they knew it wasn't safe for, for us to be there. But uh, I guess that garnered some respect, so they, uh, they let us be. That's great. That's great. Yeah, that definitely a lot of great, great information, great perspectives. We we appreciate your time today. Um, of course, there's you know there's still plenty we can talk about. So I'll, I'll extend a open invite if you want to come back and do another episode with us. We appreciate it later. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I've I've always enjoyed talking with you, Corey. So yes, I'd be more than happy to come back sometime and and talk some more. Uh, it was a uh, very unique and interesting opportunity that I had, and I'm so grateful for it. Um, you know, I was sitting around on the couch <laughs> reading the internet and, and reading the news and following us all closely. And I thought, dang, you know, gosh, I wish I could do something. And bang, it just came to me. And uh, I was so grateful to get the opportunity. I, I always had, like a lot of people who leave the military, I always had a little nagging regret about about leaving. It was for the best overall, but I always had, you know, just a little bit of nagging regret. And I got to, you know, this, this old, this fifties, 53, 54 year old guy got to go out and do a little bit of the young guy military stuff. Again, I was very grateful for that opportunity. So I'm more than happy to come back and talk about it sometime. Cool. Yeah, well, we certainly appreciate it. It's, it's definitely always valuable value added information for, for everybody listening. But, uh, with that being said, you know, I don't, I don't want to take up your whole day today, but um, we'll go ahead and we'll go ahead and wrap it up here, but we'll definitely talk some more later. So for those of y'all listening, uh, if you're not familiar, definitely check out the rest of our, our podcast episodes. They're on our Anchor page, which is anchor.fm backslash ASSP-HCPS-HealthBeat. We have a lot of great episodes on there. And then furthermore, we've got some great webinars coming up. So if you're not familiar, August 13th, we're going to be having a webinar about occupational health and the partnership with safety. And then coming up later in October, we're going to be talking about the new COVID-19 OSHA regulations. And then in November, we'll be talking about burnout syndrome and how to prevent that. And then we'll be having some more coming up in the winter. So definitely please stay tuned. And then otherwise, our next issue of the HealthBeat Journal is going to be coming along pretty soon. So definitely check out our ASSP communities page and our LinkedIn feed for that. We'll have some great articles there. And as always, if anybody's interested in writing, presenting, or being a podcast guest, please let us know. We're always happy to, to hear new voices uh, or returning voices. So uh, please feel free to keep in touch. And we'll talk to everybody real soon. Thank you all. Have a great day.